Welcome to the Rejuvenate Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Hawks, and I'm here with my co-host, Elwyn Robinson. And today we are continuing the conversation on blood sugar. We previously recorded an episode on hypoglycemia, so make sure you check that one out. And today we are continuing the conversation with insulin resistance. So Elwyn, let's get down to business. Why this topic? Why today? Well, as we talked about a few months ago, Chrissy, the thing that initially fascinated me about this is um, the question of why it is that for some people going on a ketogenic diet where they have really low carbs resolves their blood sugar issues, including insulin resistance. And then for other people being on a super high carbohydrate diet, even simple sugars like sugar and honey and rice and potato and stuff cured their blood sugar issues and insulin resistance. So I couldn't understand why that was. I think a lot of the time people just decide to pick a side and then decide the other side's lying, but I assume good faith, and there's been you know, plenty of actually scientific studies on both sides, so I wanted to understand why that was the case. But as I got into it, I realized that insulin resistance is, not only is it not a minor issue, not only is it pre-diabetes, which is why it's super important, as that's one of the biggest diseases that's afflicting people, actually not just in the Western world, but in a lot of the world, including a lot of Asia, um, it's a super common and obviously very uh, debilitating and dangerous disease. But actually, insulin resistance is possibly what is really going on when people have type 2 diabetes. And I'll explain what that means a little bit more later. And insulin resistance is implicated with all kinds of other health issues, uh, especially heart disease and cardiovascular disease, which is one of the main things that obviously kills people throughout the world. So, and there's a lot more things that's related to as well. So it turns out that it's not just pre-diabetes or even diabetes, it's actually something um, that has a negative impact in all kinds of ways that most people you know, can barely uh, think about. I was surprised to see that the, the effects of it are actually as far reaching as stress. So in the same way that stress is like one of those root causes or inflammation is one of those root causes that everyone talks about that can cause health problems in almost every sphere. So the same thing is actually true for insulin resistance as well. The other reason I wanted to talk about it is because I wanted to fix it for myself. So I had more symptoms of hypoglycemia, which we talked about in the last episode. And by the way, if you haven't watched that, you do need to watch it first because we explain in detail what insulin is and what it does and we're not going to go over that again today because we don't have time so i'm gonna assume with this episode that you have already watched that one that you do already know what insulin is how it works and all the rest of it and we're going to go straight into it today um, with that assumption but i had that issue with insulin resistance and then i actually resolved it for myself both in terms of my experience and also in terms of lab tests which we'll talk about later it's gone and so i was like great, let me share how I did it, let me share what works. And I did eventually manage to resolve that conflict between why is it that for some people eating basically, you know, extremely high carb cures them of this, and for some people eating no carb cures them of this. So I thought, and, and the why that's possible is very interesting. So that's why I want to talk about this episode. So Elwyn, what is 
insulin resistance. I think we're going to pick this a little apart a little bit today, but yeah, can you go into it and, uh, you know, help us understand it more? So just a quick review. So insulin is a hormone created by the pancreas that helps to transport glucose from the blood to the cells. That's a very brief review. Again, way more depth last time. So what is insulin resistance then? So insulin resistance is uh, a situation where insulin builds up in the blood to higher levels than you would want. Now, of course, we tend to think of um, type 2 diabetes and prediabetes as being an issue of excess blood sugar. And this is, of course, at least partially true. Um, and when you have excess blood sugar, it can get to a level where it is dangerous and life threatening. But it turns out the same is actually true for insulin as well. Possibly without life threatening, but certainly dangerous and certainly leading to a indirectly dangerous but leading to a lot of health problems and so when that insulin builds up and stays high it is a very bad thing potentially so that's one issue with it the other issue is um that it's not doing its job the fact that it's building up and it's in the blood means that it's not doing the job of transporting the sugar to the cells. And that's where the term insulin resistance comes from. It comes from the idea, which I don't think is necessarily actually true, which we'll talk about, but it comes from the idea that the cell is resisting the insulin or that the insulin is not getting through to the cell. Um, and this does happen with a lot of things like a down regulation. We've talked about this before with various neurotransmitters and stuff that if there is a lot of something in your bloodstream, a lot of a certain hormone, a lot of certain neurotransmitter, your uh, receptors will downregulate to kind of take in less of them. And so that's the thinking with the insulin as well. But actually in the case of insulin, I'm not certain that that's necessarily what's going on. So insulin resistance may be misnamed. I think the key to insulin resistance is that it's chronically, not temporarily, chronically, consistently high insulin in the blood which then has all kinds of negative downstream effects. And having a high level of insulin um, when, you are, when you've just had something to eat, and especially a high-carb meal, is totally fine. And so the thing that we're more focused on usually is fasting insulin. So when you haven't eaten for a while, that insulin should be cleared away. And so if it's still there, if it's constantly there, that's not natural, that's not optimal. One of the things I do hear a lot as well these days is metabolic syndrome. So how, how does that relate or what's the distinction of the, the difference between insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome? Yeah, so metabolic syndrome is definitely related, but it's a little bit different. So this is where the metabolism is so suboptimal that it's actually medically recognized. And the three big symptoms that they're looking for are hypertension, diabetes, or possibly prediabetes, um, and being overweight, probably obese. In other words, holding on to a lot of fat. Now, how is that related? They are all related because as we'll talk about, hypertension, gaining a lot of fat, and obviously diabetes are all related to and insulin resistance is a causative factor for all three of those things. But it's more, insulin resistance is something you could technically have without having any of those three problems yet but insulin resistance will tend to lead to those problems. It will tend to lead to metabolic syndrome. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. Then with insulin resistance, I mean, maybe this is the same answer to both of this, is the, you know, how 
or why do we become insulin resistant and how do we become like if, the, if it's the same thing can you delve into that for me yeah that's the million dollar question so this is why i dove into and i tried to steel man both arguments that's what it's called where you try to find like the best um, exemplar of different perspectives so this is really easy in the case of the first perspective, which is much more common and which I see all the time in the natural and alternative health world. So the basic theory about insulin resistance that you'll normally find if you look it up, if you buy the average book about it, if you watch a YouTube about it, if you read an article about it is this. Human beings these days are eating far too many carbs and far too many simple carbs. We're not adapted to it for a long time, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of years. We had very few carbs available to us. Um, until agriculture, maybe 10,000-ish years ago, roughly, depending on your, your ancestors. Um, we didn't have access to agriculture. So carbs were few and far between for most of our ancestors throughout most of our human civilization. Now we've got loads. Not only have we got agriculture, but we've got industry. We've got unlimited supply of food, all these things. And so that's unnatural. This is their perspective, the low-carb people. Um, and so the other issue is that we're not moving as much as we used to. We used to walk four to six hours a day on average. Um, that's hunter-gatherer you know, times. And then since uh, you know, agricultural industrial revolution, we still, sorry, agricultural first, we still would have moved a hell of a lot more than now. And even with the industrial revolution, there was still a lot of you know, lifting things and moving things and all the rest of it. And so the idea of a desk-bound job where you just sit down all the time is very, very unusual for the vast majority of our history. Um, even, you know, kings and queens and all the rest of it. Well, you know, you might say that the aristocracy got to just sit around, but actually they were at war all the time and they were constantly training for war. So, you know, and they were doing sports and hunting and all the rest of it. So everyone had to move and the few who didn't have to still chose to until recently. So that's the other part of it. Why does that matter? Because when uh because the two main places that your body stores sugar glucose in the form of glycogen is in your liver and in your muscles and the muscles is the main place even though the liver is kind of in charge of it um, like there's more in your muscles than anywhere else and so when you exercise you deplete all that glucose in the form of glycogen in your muscles and then when you have more glucose in the form of carbs the insulin transports it into your muscle cells again now, if you never deplete your muscles because you never really push yourself that hard, then when you next have carbs, your insulin will go up, but there's like nowhere for it to go because you haven't depleted the muscles because you haven't exercised. That's the theory behind that. And I'm saying with all these, that's the theory, but there's some degree of truth to everything I'm saying. We're just going to work out how much it is. And then the other issue, of course, is too frequent eating. The argument would go that, again, throughout most of our human history, food was not a guarantee right? As hunter-gatherers, which again is most of our evolution, there would be times where there was no food. And so we would be fasting, especially during winter, you know, whatever. And so it's not natural to have a constant supply of food. That's how the argument would go. And so again, it's the same thing. When there's, when there's sometimes no food, your body will deplete those stores of glycogen in your muscles and in your liver, and it also deplete the stores of energy in the form of fat in your fat cells. And then when you do consume some calories, some carbs, the insulin will have plenty of places to put it. All right. So this is, I think, an easy to understand theory. And I think that's why it's become 
very popular. So uh, just quickly, just so I'm understanding it correctly, what I'm hearing you say is essentially we need to deplete the glucose that we have in our systems so that we're ready for more. It's like we can't stuff more into that suitcase if it's already full. Yes, that's how the theory goes. Uh, I'd say it's to sum it up as simply as possible. The problem is we're having way more carbs, way more frequently when you, than we used to do before, and we're using up way less than we ever have before. That's what they would say. And there's definitely obviously some truth to every statement I've made, right? All of these things are true to some degree. And so because of that, the advice is really simple based on the three things I just said. We're eating more carbs than ever before. Stop that. <laughs> That's the advice for that, right? <laughs> Eat a ketogenic diet. Have most of your calories come from fat, maybe MCT, especially easy ketones, easy forms of energy. Okay, not enough exercise. Stop that. Start exercising more. And then too frequent eating. Stop that start fasting, start doing intermittent fasting. That's really popular with this kind of community. And so the reason why that strategy works, even if there's something missing from it, is because it's kind of like, to me, it's a brute force way of forcing the insulin down. Because yeah, if you hardly ever have hardly any carbohydrates, then the chances that your body will produce so much insulin that it becomes excessive obviously will be less. And if you go for extended periods of our eating, then that means that you're going for an extended period without any reason for your body to release insulin. And so even if you have a backlog of insulin, your body would slowly clear that because you're not doing anything to stimulate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. That absolutely does, yeah. Okay. And it is quite an easy theory to understand. It makes sense, even intuitively, and I think that's why it's caught on and become really, really popular. However, it doesn't necessarily explain why some people do better on a high carbohydrate diet with very little fat. And it doesn't, it also to me, a certain thing is lacking that a lot of people do feel great on a ketogenic diet and it's revolutionary for them and they feel so much healthier and they have so much more energy and they lose weight and they resolve their high insulin and all the rest of it. Maybe they resolve their high blood sugar, but there are plenty of other people who have quite a bad experience with it. Um, for various different reasons. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I don't know if we have time to go into that here, but, you know, could you elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, when I explain um, the other theory, that should hopefully make more sense. Perfect, okay. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I'll just say that um, the people who, uh, you know, are following that, the good thing is that it works when you stick to it, so long as you can stick to it and not everyone can. The bad news is that, from my perspective, it's not really resolving the problem. The proof of that being, as soon as you start eating carbs again, your insulin doesn't is not now controlled because the very premise you're working with is that I should not be eating carbs. And so if you start eating them again, of course your insulin is going to go up. Of course you're going to have insulin resistance and high blood sugar. So some people say it's not a problem to me, Owen. I've been eating keto 20 years. I feel great. I lost loads of weight. I'm healthy. All my blood reports are saying I'm healthy. In which case, great, right? Go with it. If you are happy not eating carbs for the rest of your life, genuinely, and I'm not being facetious, some people are, then great, right? Good for you. Um, there is a challenge, of course, which is that in order to as I talked about a lot in the last episode, your body needs glucose in order to create energy. And so in order to get enough energy when you eat no carbs, your body has to make carbs out of um, amino acids 
and it has to make it out of uh, fats indirectly via triglycerides, but it has to make it out of fats. So one way or another, it's getting glucose. Now, in order for your body to get that glucose that it wants out of amino acids and fats, the only way it can do that is for your stress chemicals to be high, for your cortisol and noradrenaline, at least. We're going to talk about others later on that I've got prepared, but at least those have to be high. And for health purposes and health reasons, it's going against the things that we want because other, if we're spiking and we're putting more stress in the system, even though we may not be feeling stressed, but our, our body's going through the process, that's counterproductive to the things we want, right? It's counterproductive to some of them. And this is why I'm saying I'm a, I kind of want to steel man that argument. So because as I said, some people are like, oh, when I've been keto for 20 years, I lost weight, my, my cardiovascular disease went away, you know, you're telling me it's wrong? No, I'm not, right? Because it's about balance. So is having chronically high cortisol and noradrenaline bad? Yes. Is having chronically high insulin, what they call insulin resistance, potentially worse? Yes. Chronically high insulin will prematurely age you arguably as much or more than chronically high cortisol. And so that's why some people do better. Now, remember, everyone's different genetically we've talked before in different episodes about the compt gene some people break down stress chemicals quite easily and quickly and some people break it down very slowly and with difficulty and some people are in the between so i suspect that for the person who breaks down stress chemicals very easily and quickly that they have less issues with the ketogenic approach because the stress chemicals never build up you know too too much i mean they're, they're going to be high but they're not going to be too high necessarily because their body will keep breaking them down for other people who have a tendency to either really spike stress chemicals excessively which i believe i have or if you have a tendency to not break them down very easily then that can be one of the reasons to ask your earlier question why the keto diet will not seem to work for you <laughs> okay perfect yeah that's oh yeah that's a lot. <laughs> so then going into the, my next part of this really is, I mean, I understand the process about we have to clear the, clear out the glucose so that there's more space, you know, because if something's already full, you can't put any more in it. And I understand that the insulin is rising and rising to do the job better. It will not do the job better, but to try and do its job if things are already yeah. full. So then, and you discuss the parts of, um, you know, the not moving, not exercising and the, you know, too frequent if eating and things like that. But what, you know, what else would cause a person's body to be or to have insulin resistance? So as I said, that's one theory about the cause of it. Now, what I don't like about it is what you just said, that it's predicated on keeping stress chemicals high in order to function. It's also predicated on having a very restrictive diet. And it's predicated on this idea that carbohydrates are bad, which I do not think is necessarily true. So here's the other theory on it. The other theory is that what's actually causing the insulin resistance is not excessive carbohydrate, lack of exercise, lack of fasting, but what's causing it is that actually free, very small particles of fat floating around in the bloodstream are starting to get into the cells and block the insulin from being able to transport the glucose into them. So this theory um, 
the the so the previous theory, the best exponent of it that I came across was a guy called Ben Bickman. I think he's great. Um, he's I can't remember the name of his book, but something like What Causes All Disease. It's like a, a big claim, but he does a very good job of making a case of um, everything that I just said and also all the terrible things that insulin does to the body, which I think he's largely correct about. Um, but he's very much in the keto camp. Now, the other camp, the best um, exponent of it I've found so far is Ray Pete, who we've talked about before. So this is what Ray Pete would say. He would say that when the insulin um, starts to drop, and we talked about this in the last episode, keeping insulin not too high, but not too low either, keeping it at the right level is the thing that is most important for health. It's very easy to be simplistic about this stuff and start to go, well, high insulin is bad, so I want to get my insulin as low as possible. Now, by the way, I'm not saying this to justify my own insulin. When I recently did a fasting insulin test, my insulin was like so low <laughs> that actually, by Ray Pete's theory, it's maybe not ideal. So I'm not saying this to judge my, you know, to uh, justify my own position, but this is the theory. So the theory is that when the insulin drops too low because you haven't had enough carbohydrates, completely opposite view, your body does... Uh, lipolysis and it does gluconeogenesis which we talked about in the last episode but basically to simplify it this process of breaking down fat and breaking down so breaking down fat in the fat cells and breaking down protein in the muscles as well as the process of trying to pull glycogen out of the muscles and liver but it does that in addition so there's not enough glucose coming in, it needs glucose. Your body needs a constant supply of glucose, right? So to review. So where's it going to get glucose from? It's got some in storage, but also it automatically, if there's not enough insulin presence, will start cannibalizing your muscles and it will start cannibalizing your fat cells. Now, cannibalizing your muscles is obviously not a great thing. I just... Um, was listening to a thing about Ozempic today. I, I've given you know criticisms about it that are different from this, but I heard uh, a Dr. Peter Atia, I think, talking about how he found that when people are using Ozempic, yes, they lost weight, but their fat percentage actually went up and it was more muscle mass that they were losing. And so this is, does not surprise me. The main thing that Ozempic does is it um, causes you to eat much less. And so when you eat much less, you're in this calorie deficient state, your insulin is going to tend to be lower depending on what you're eating. And so your body, unfortunately, has this tendency to, because of this uh, gluconeogenesis, pull um, amino acids from your muscles as one of its primary sources of fuel, often before it starts breaking down fat cells. So that's not good. Because your muscles, as well as being, you know, as you get older, like a crucial um, thing that will keep you alive, you know, falls and breaks and stuff often uh, take people out as they get older. Um, but also your percentage of muscle to fat is one of the primary drivers of health, metabolic health. And this is actually something that both Ben Bickman and Ray Pete would agree on, um, that that ratio is important because muscle will tend to use, burn more energy than fat does. So something that breaks down muscle, a situation that breaks down muscle is not ideal. But from Ray Pete's perspective, the worst thing actually is surprising and it's break the, breaking down the fat. Because when it breaks down fat in this particular way, it means that a lot of free fatty acids start floating around in the blood. 
Now, part of the issue here is what type of fat you have in storage. If you have saturated fats in storage, that's not great if they start to become free and released into the bloodstream, but it's not terrible. If you have a lot of omega-6 unsaturated fatty acids in storage in your fat cells, and then they get released and liberated into your bloodstream, this causes chronic inflammation. And this is one of the points, again, that these two opposing viewpoints agree on. They both agree that in omega-3, sorry, omega-6 fatty acids, seed oils generally called, are highly inflammatory, contribute to insulin resistance, and make insulin resistance worse. So this is something that everyone can agree on. And one of the interesting things, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but the people who are curing themselves with pure um, keto, or the people who are curing themselves with pure high carb, high glycemic carbs, like baked potatoes or white rice or whatever, one thing that they have in common is that neither of them are having a lot of omega-6 or any omega-6s. So reducing omega-6s seems to be the thing or one of the things that everyone can agree on which will help for insulin resistance. Now, of course, omega-6s also suppress thyroid function. That's one of the mechanisms by which they work. And so, so imagine this. 100 years ago, I mean, I, I, I haven't verified this, but I saw article recently that said like the average calorie intake for people 100 years ago was three to 4,000 calories a day. They weren't necessarily particularly active because we're talking about 100 years ago, not two, 300 years ago. Um, they were eating quite a lot of sugar. So there goes the whole low carb theory <laughs> that none of them were overweight or obese, pretty much. It was like exceptional situation. So what was different, you know? And this is a bit of, I'm going to tell you, that, you know, several other things that are different now than they were 100 years ago, but this is the first one. Back then, the percentage of omega-6 fat, omega fats in the diet was maybe 1% or 2% of calories. These days, it's 20 to 30% of calories. This makes a massive difference. So anyway, going back to what causes insulin resistance. So these free fatty acids are released into the bloodstream and your body's attempts to um, free up some energy because there's a lack of glucose, maybe a lack of calories in general coming in. Um, your body's in this fasted state. It's raising its stress chemicals. It's breaking down muscle tissue. It's liberating free fatty acids. And this is actually blocking the cells so that then the insulin resistor is not able to function properly. That's the theory behind it. Okay, so I'm quite a visual in this way. And so what I'm seeing is that this free fatty acids flowing in the bloodstream. Can you explain like how that's blocking the insulin from getting in? Is it just like taking up space on receptor sites? Is it not allowing things to get through? Or could you, could you dive into that for me? Yeah, the most I understand this is that it is blocking the receptor. Okay. Exactly right. And that the omega-6 blocks it more. Um, remember, every cell, I mean, this is a bit complicated, but it's got this like a cell membrane. It's got a phospholipid, which is a kind of type of fat. It's got like saturated fats all around it. So it really doesn't take much to reduce the permeability of the cell to the point that it's no longer sufficiently permeable for the insulin to get in. 
I don't know if I don't understand it of any more detail than that, or if actually anyone understands it in any more detail than that, because um, that's as far as I have been able to get to. But what people have observed is that, well, yeah, let me uh, let me get to that. So to me, this explain this could explain why there are people who take diets of, as I said, high carbohydrate, no fat. And um, one of the you know, versions of that that I came across a long time ago, back when I was a vegan, was fruitarians, right? So they're absolutely people who eat 100% only fruit who cure their type 2 diabetes, who cure their insulin resistance, right? How is that possible? Well, I've given you one theory already. No omega-6 fats in fruit, except for, yeah, I'm trying to think, even the fatty fruits, avocado, there's not much, olive, there's not much. So, yeah, there is none. <laughs> so... Uh, so that's one theory as to why that could actually work, right? Um, now, the other thing, of course, is that elevating stress and elevating omega-6s um, causes inflammation and causes suppressed thyroid function. Thyroid function, as we know, is essential for um, the cell to function, the, the mitochondria within the cells to function in general. So I think that is a part of it as well, and that's why... Um, that could explain why the insulin resistance often correlates with people gaining weight, especially gaining fat. Okay, then I just, this is going to throw this out there. I might have somebody, some people say, yeah, but I'm supposed to have fats for the health of my cell membranes and, and things like that. But you're talking about a specific type of fat, correct? Well, not the fruitarian is not, right? So they're just saying don't have any fat other than maybe, you know, a couple of olives or something like that. As I said, there are extremes on both sides, right? There are people who say no carbs and they cure themselves with diabetes. And then there are people who say only carbs and they cure themselves with diabetes. And so I'm trying to understand how both of those things are possible. And this is what I'm trying to explain how it's possible, right? So now if we go back to the other theory, the keto theory, how does that make sense then? Well, because obviously with the keto diet, you're flooding your blood supply with these free fatty acids, which are blocking the uptake of insulin. But of course, you're not taking any carbs and you're depleting the glycogen storage in your muscles and your liver on a regular basis by fasting or exercising. Um, and so even though you have blocked the uptake of insulin with this strategy, um, it doesn't matter because you're not stimulating insulin because you're not having the carbs. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you haven't resolved the problem. You have merely made it irrelevant because, sure, I've blocked my cells from taking up, you know, insulin effectively with all these free fatty acids. But you know what? I'm hardly stimulating any insulin because I'm not eating any carbohydrates. So that's fine. It's no problem. Like... In order to have enough insulin, that, that insulin resistance is a problem, you have to have carbohydrates to stimulate that much insulin. Like protein will stimulate a bit of insulin, some of the amino acids like leucine and arginine. Um, sweet flavors like artificial sweeteners will stimulate a little bit of insulin. But as Ben Bickman says, like all these are hardly anything as long as you're not having carbs. So very little insulin is secreted. And so it's never going to build up to the point of insulin resistance, even if you are blocking the ability of your cells to uptake insulin effectively with the free fatty acids, because you're never stimulating insulin in the first place. So 
that's how both those theories could be true at the same time if that makes sense <laughs> yeah no I th that definitely makes sense yeah I'm understanding it a little bit more I mean so what you're saying about within the keto and I'm going to use an analogy and tell me if it's correct is there's a stain on the carpet um, but yet if I move the couch over the carpet nobody's going to see it so I've, I've kind of fixed <laughs> the stain sort of so long as you don't move that carpet you know <laughs> basically couch, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay okay I don't want anyone to take this simplistically and go oh Oh, Elwin, okay, what you just said makes sense. I will now stop eating keto and start eating carbs. Because what would you think would happen if you do that, right? Think about it. I've just said that by eating a high keto, low-carb diet for ages, you've made yourself more insulin resistance. If you then start eating a load of carbohydrates, will that fix the issue? No, you're gonna, it's going to make you worse, right? You're going to put on weight. You're going to... Your insulin is going to be too high. It's going to cause all the other issues. It's going to cause, uh, you know, I've got a list. I guess you're going to ask me about that later. But, I will. Um, yeah, hold that one. <laughs> <laughs> With these two theories that are essentially different, can you summarize it for us just with a nice little bow and essentially kind of uh, wrap it up for us in, in what they agree on? Yeah, so what they agree on, it's pretty simple. Um, so one thing I've really talked about, everyone who effectively resolves this is against large amounts or really any, ideally, omega-6 fatty acids. So that's seed oil, right? Soy oil, corn oil, but even the ones that are supposed to be healthy, sunflower oil, safflower oil. The repeat camp would actually say even omega-3s, especially the seeds. So, you know, flaxseed oil, hemp seed oil, and all the rest of it um, are all having that effect. The other camp, the keto camp, is probably not as against the omega-3s. They may even be for them. But what they agree on is the omega-6s are bad news. They are pro-inflammatory um, and they reduce, um, they increase insulin resistance by reducing insulin sensitivity. Now, another big factor that they actually both agree on is that stress makes insulin resistance worse. Now, the fact that they both agree on that, and yet the keto camp recommends a type of eating which artificially keep stress chemicals high sounds like a little bit of a contradiction to me but still fundamentally if if that works for you as we talked about earlier and you do your best to keep your stress chemicals low otherwise i can see how that's a strategy that could potentially work for you and that you would feel better with it right so they both agree to keep omega-6 as low as possible they both agree to keep stress as low as possible it's just from my perspective it's not possible to keep your stress like as low as possible possible when you're constantly in a state of ketosis, but whatever. Yeah, I was going to ask, because like the defining stress, so, you know, there's obviously there's the external traumas, there's emotional things like that. But as you just talked about, when we are intermittent fasting, or let's say our body doesn't have enough fuel, as we've recent, uh, recently discovered with your interview with the Dr. Michael Platt, that the body, the brain detects it needs more fuel, it's going to kick up those, those stress hormones to get the glucose. So having that look at stress, yep. yeah, the definitions there would be helpful. Yeah, so are you stressed? This is a tricky one, because... Um, it's like asking a fish to define water in many cases. Um, it's all you've ever known as long as you remember, and so you don't really realize. So how can you tell if you're stressed? Well, of course, there's blood tests, um, but even they're not super reliable. The best one for that is cortisol, uh, first thing in the morning cortisol. Um, but what really matters is actually your adrenaline and noradrenaline, and that's something that's hard to test for because it's a neurotransmitter more than it is a hormone and it fluctuates wildly basically so 
hormone like cortisol fluctuates more over the course of hours or days so it's easier to test for noradrenaline you can have 10 times as much in one minute than you do the next so it's harder to test for so to some degree it's got to be experiential right and so uh, one great test of how stressed you are is really simple sit down in an environment with no input whatsoever no one around you door shut headphones on blindfold on if necessary because you can't keep you know the outside stimulus out otherwise sit in a chair and attempt to stop thinking for 20 minutes if you get racing thoughts if you have if your to-do list is on your mind if this thing that's upset you all the rest of it that's a classic sign of stress this is most people by the way i realize that but most people are in a state of stress to some degree or another and this is something that's relatively recent in our history yes i realize most of your ancestors may not have meditated but most of your ancestors absolutely did sit silently doing nothing for extended periods of time throughout their evolution you know hunters would go out and then they okay they'd be aware of their environment but they would be basically doing nothing no input just watching for that little noise or you know quick something um and you know people in general before the invention of electric light and all the rest of it you know a lot of time they would be in darkness for a lot of the year like there, there just was a lot of sitting around doing nothing very few people can do that these days a lot of a lot of daydreaming, a lot of, you know, considering whatever you want to call it. We don't do that these days. We constantly have input, right? We're constantly doing stuff or we're having stuff put into us. And so that's a really great test, how easily you can just sit and do nothing. The thing that allows you to sit and do nothing is a neurotransmitter called GABA. When GABA is high, it means that you can just go into a peaceful centered state and relax. Most people, their cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, maybe even dopamine, but more the first three, overpower that GABA. It's all about ratio. So stress chemicals are really high, GABA not that high. And so their mind will be racing. Maybe they'll even be fidgeting, itching, can't sit still, can't do that. But at the very least, the mind will be da -da 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 -da, talking, 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 talking. They can't just calm down. So that's a great uh, example of stress. Another example of stress is how reactive you are to things. So most people think of stress as something that is going on outside of them. But it's true, of course, really terrible things can happen that it is justifiable to feel upset. But I think most of us with some degree of self-reflection, we can admit that a lot of the time we get upset about things and later we go, oh, that wasn't really such a big deal. Why did I get so upset about that? Why did I say that to that person? Why did I react that way? You know... Or maybe you don't ever lash out or whatever, but you hold it all in, right? And you that will show up as muscular tension in the body. So chronic pain is an, another potential, you know, manifestation of stress in people. But I think the simplest one is the sitting silently one. Yeah, that's a really good one. I hear a lot about racing thoughts. And there's a big out there about, you know, people not being able to sleep or waking up and not being able to go back to bed. But I don't want to, I want to digress and go back to the summary. So you said- That's one another the, one. Yeah. Yep. But sometimes, like a lot of time, that's actually a sign of stress. If you sit there and you fall asleep, that's actually a sign of stress because it means you're so exhausted that as soon as you remove the input, your body's like, right, I'm going to shut down. 
you know your brain's like right i'm going to shut down because i've got a moment's peace so that's also a sign of stress so falling asleep isn't necessarily a sign that you're not stressed it's really not being able to be present and centered and aware without falling asleep and without having racing thoughts that's the key Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just need to take a moment to quickly tell you about a way that you can support the podcast by getting high quality, affordable supplements that Elwin and I personally use, and that's Feel Younger. What I love about Feel Younger is they have great quality products with minimal fillers, but the prices are very affordable. You can call their customer support team 20 hours a day, seven days a week, and in my experience, they're really helpful and friendly. And what I love most of all is the amazing descriptions Elwin's written for each each product category about that topic. There's so much information and education on it. I've actually learned more from reading their product descriptions than I have for most articles. So to support the podcast, please use Feel Younger for all your supplement needs. And to let them know we sent you, you can use promo code rejuvenateme for a 20% discount off your first order at feelyounger.net. That's 20% off your first order with promo code rejuvenateme at feelyounger.net. Thank you. So going back to the summary, you said the first one was um, about the no omega-6. The second was that uh, stress makes insulin resistance worse. And I believe there was another one. Yeah, a couple of supplements that, as far as I can see, everyone agrees with. So berberine is really great. Um, there's a drug kind of form of berberine called metformin, which is often given to um, uh, diabetics. And is also taken by a lot of uh, people in the kind of life extension, longevity, anti-aging community um, for complicated reasons. I'll perhaps go into in another one, but basically probably the simple reason is because it is so good at reducing insulin resistance. So in terms of um, I don't want to hear all this and I just want to take a pill. My number one recommendation would be Burberry. And you can do that with any diet. It will help you even if you're eating omega-6s, even if you're doing this, even if you're doing that. It will help to some degree. And so that's pretty impressive. Um, berberine is not quite as powerful at that as metformin, but it has like maybe a tenth of the level of side effects. So it's way, way, way safer. Um, and so I personally would always go for berberine rather than uh, metformin. Uh, another one that's actually really good is inositol. So inositol is a type of sugar um but sugar alcohol hence the all at the end that is um that used to be called a b vitamin but they eventually decided it wasn't a b vitamin because we can actually make it ourselves and vitamins have to be something we can't make ourselves um but it's uh so it used to be sold as part of a b complex it isn't anymore but it's still often solved people with pcos um polycystic ovary syndrome and PCOS is a classic sign of um, insulin resistance. So inositol and berberine are the two uh, compounds that I found that they're the most studies saying that it's really effective and that it actually helps. And that's a great summary. Thank you, Ellen. That's really, really helpful. Um, my question here now is people usually associate the issue to be with blood glucose and not necessarily insulin. Is it the same? Is there something different? Let's unpack the confusion or if there's any confusion around that. Well, it's funny because that actually leads me to another thing that I found both Ben Bickman and Ray Pete agreed on despite their opposite dietary recommendations. And it's something that the mainstream definitely doesn't agree on. Um, and so it's what actually is diabetes. So Great if you go back to... <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to... Uh, when diabetes was first discovered. So what they found is 
um, people had uh, glucose, they had sugar in their urine. And they would also have this issue where they would be wasting away, basically. So they were like completely malnourished and they, they, they seem to not be able to utilize glucose and turn it into energy. And so they would waste away. And so th they kind of call it the sugar disease because of the sugar being found in the urine. Then um, they developed the ability to test sugar in the blood. That was very easy for them to do. And they, sure enough, they found very elevated levels of sugar in the blood. And so because of the excess sugar in the urine and the excess sugar in the blood, the conclusion was, oh, it's a problem with too much sugar. Very logical, very understandable. At the time they made that conclusion, I don't think insulin had even been discovered yet. And once insulin was discovered, it, was, um, it took them a lot longer, several more decades before they learned how to actually test for it. And here's the key thing, still in this day and age, it is so easy to test for blood sugar is ridiculous. You can buy a kit from any pharmacy or whatever or on Amazon and you'll get like 30 tests for, I don't know, 10, $20, like something like that. Super easy. You can do it yourself, pinprick, you get the result in 10 seconds. It's the easiest thing in the world. Getting a test for insulin is so damn hard. Um, I actually had to use a different company I usually do that, that would actually test insulin. And learning, you know, Ben Bigman's more of a classic medical doctor guy. So hearing him talk about it, you know, he explained that you actually have to use radioactive material for tests to insulin. It's a very difficult, sensitive test. That's why some labs won't even do it. It's hard to know if they're getting the right level. And so it's also expensive. So usually talking about like $100 to test your insulin. So we've got, you know, 50 cents to test sugar. $100 to test insulin, if it's even available, you have to wait a few days, possibly a week. Blood sugar result, you can get in 20 seconds. Insulin result, one week. 50 cents, $100. So you can see just from that simple reality that the thing they're going to focus on is sugar, not insulin. Well, let me ask you this. The, your blood sugar, the, that doesn't, that's not a, an indicator of where your insulin's at, though, correct? Well... Uh, so the first thing that usually goes wrong is that you're getting a little bit of insulin resistance or you're creating excessive insulin for other reasons, which we talked about in the last episode. And then your blood sugar will be periodically low, which we call hypoglycemia. Um, then depending on, you know, if you do anything about that, the next stage will tend to be that you're, you get more insulin resistant. And so now the sugar starts to build up because there's, the insulin is not working to get the sugar from the blood into the cells. So then you'll start to see, so first of all, it will be good. Then it will be high insulin, low sugar. Then it will be high insulin, high sugar which would be more a classic insulin resistance. And then if that situation goes on too long, and this is the normal mainstream theory, the insulin kind of, sorry, the pancreas packs up, it can't do it anymore, and then the insulin will be low and the blood sugar will stay high. And that's why they would supplement insulin. They'll give you insulin with the idea of being, we'll try and get the insulin high again to force the sugar into the cells. 
which works to some degree. However, the objection that, as I said, both uh, Ben Bickman and Ray Pete have to that is this. A lot of what's called diabetes these days, type 2 diabetes, where the person is obese, where they have hypertension, is not where they have high cholesterol, is not necessarily a lack of insulin. And usually they don't even test insulin. I remember you showed me blood test results for a type 2 diabetes client recently, Chrissy, and I said, I was laughing. I was like, they didn't test for insulin. It's like the most important thing you could possibly test. But I'm laughing when I actually see it. But of course, I know that's routine. They don't test for the most important thing. So for that person, we don't even know if their insulin is low and they need it being supplemented or if it is actually still in that situation where it's excessively high along with the blood sugar. So do you see what I mean? They're calling it type 2 diabetes, but is it actually really insulin resistance? And here's one of the ways that you, you can tell from my understanding is that high insulin leads, isn't, so insulin is an anabolic hormone, as we talked about in detail in the last episode, so, and high insulin leads to more fat storage, specifically, more storage of energy in general. And once, you know, your glycogen stores are all topped up and all the rest, more storage of fat in particular. So true diabetes, where a person's insulin is really genuinely low, they're going to start wasting away because not enough energy is getting into their cells. But the person who just gets more and more obese, which is the average type 2 diabetic in this day and age, they maybe they don't have low insulin. This is a theory, and the crazy thing is they don't test it. So we don't even know if that's necessarily true. If I had that disease, I would certainly be demanding that test or paying for it myself to see if my insulin is actually low or if it's actually high, and maybe that is why I keep you know, gaining weight and all my symptoms are getting worse. I know this sounds like a crazy theory because it's the opposite of what we're taught in the mainstream. We're taught that with that condition, that blood sh uh, sugar is high, but insulin is low. That's why we have to take insulin. But given that that strategy doesn't work, that people get more and more unhealthy generally, they get more and more obese generally, they get more and more hypertension generally and all the rest of it, is it worth reconsidering if the fundamental assumptions about the disease are false, like I said Dr. Ray Pete and Dr. Ben Bickman do and many others who follow each school of thought? I think so. You know, it's worth considering. It's worth testing at least, right? Don't take my word for it that your insulin is not uh, low, but test for it. See if it is actually low. So for all those type 2 diabetics out there that are also supplementing or have been prescribed insulin. So what I'm hearing is you're saying that that could absolutely be wrong, correct? It could. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm reporting what I've learned from other doctors. That's all. Okay. <laughs> and I'm saying don't take my word for it, but test for it, maybe. Do a fasting insulin test. Really... If you had the genuine diabetes, diabetes, fasting insulin should be nothing. Hell, even insulin after food should be low if you're not supplementing it. If that's the case, then sure, you have the type of diabetes that they've described. But if you're putting on more and more weight as opposed to wasting away, maybe there's more to it. Maybe uh, the insulin is not actually extremely low. Maybe that's not actually the problem. Maybe the issue is insulin resistance. And the reason the sugar is building up more and more in the blood and 
once it builds up too much in the blood, then the kidneys start excreting it. And that's where it's in the urine. And that's the classic test that they will do. If you go to a hospital and say, I think I've got diabetes, the first thing they'll do is say, pee on this stick. And they'll go, does it have glucose? No, okay, you're probably fine, right? If it does, oh, you have type 2 diabetes. So that's like so much glucose that it's sp spilling out via the kidneys and the bladder. But the assumption is that that glucose is so high because there's not enough insulin to transport it into the cells. Is that tested adequately? That would be the question. Yeah, so really going back to that, who's the main culprit really? Is it the glucose or is it the insulin? Um, the glucose is secondary, yeah. I would say. It's the insulin. That's what I'm understanding. And as I said, these two polar opposite perspectives actually amazingly both agree on that point. It's the excess insulin that's really the issue. Now, is it possible that eventually, that in some cases, or even many cases, I don't know, that uh, the mainstream understanding is correct and that a person's pancreas gets so overworked that it stops producing insulin or starts not being able to produce enough, that's definitely possible. So my point is not to tell you what your insulin is. My point is that that should be being tested before you take, you know, a bunch of stuff for a situation that may be the opposite of what you actually have. Okay, good, good direction. Yeah, look into it, find find out more, get tested. So what would you say are would be the, um, the signs and symptoms that somebody would look for with insulin resistance? Yeah, so I actually copied a list from Ben Bickman for this. Um, his book is great. So very simply, number one thing, do you have more fat around the belly than, you know, is optimal? Um, belly specifically, right? If you have insulin building up around the chest, around the hips, around the buttocks, that tends to be more excess estrogen. It's really the fat being around the belly that is more insulin. Of course, if you have both fat everywhere, then you might well have both excess insulin and excess estrogen. But it's around the belly specifically, right? I mean, some women, for instance, it's quite common. They have a lot of fat, you know, around like the, the bottom half of their body, but not, they still have a very thin, small waist. So that would definitely be more insulin. Uh, sorry, that would definitely be more estrogen than insulin. So that's one of the uh, signs of it. Um, high blood pressure, uh, absolutely is for various reasons, um, which yeah, Ben Bickman explains in detail. Um, do you have a family history of heart disease? So that's another telltale sign. Do you have high levels of blood triglycerides? Um, so uh, this is a little bit complicated, but it's related to what we were talking about before, that kind of backup supply of energy. Um, having too much of it, it's a bit like the free fatty acids or a bit like the freed up amino acids. Uh, do you retain water easily? So this, I mean, these can obviously relate to a lot of other issues, but this next one is quite specific. Do you have patches of dark colored skin or little bumps of skin called skin tags at your neck, armpits, or other areas? And this is a classic sign of insulin resistance. Um, and of course, do you have a family member with insulin resistance or diabetes? Um, if you tend to feel tired, especially a couple of hours after eating, because when you eat, if you have a lack of insulin, your sugar will actually go too high. But of course, if you have an excess of insulin, which is, again, what the hallmark of insulin resistance, then the blood sugar will go too low fairly quickly after two to three hours. So that crash of energy two, three hours after eating is a classic sign of uh, excess in, uh, insulin. And then for women, if you have uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, 
or for men, if you have erectile dysfunction, these are classic uh, signs of it as well, especially in combination of everything else that we've talked about. So I think the main thing is insulin, we think of blood sugar, but from that list, you probably got an idea it's just as much related to cardiovascular disease in all of its various forms. Yeah. And it's also related to immune system dysfunction. And that relates to the C word disease that generally we don't talk about. Um, but all, you know, and, and of course, all kinds of other issues as well. Um, as I said, I won't do it justice because Ben Bickman does, you know, several hours on this and I didn't want to go into this because I feel like, you know, he explains it well. Loads of other people do, to be fair. Like, it's very easy to find what's, why is insulin resistance bad videos um, on YouTube. It's not so easy to find any that answer the questions we're doing this video. So I'll leave that for other people to explain it fully. In, the, in that list that you gave, you did, you know, you, you mentioned the cardiovascular system, the immune system. I was going to ask, are there any conditions that go hand in hand with insulin resistance beyond those that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, there's also neurological, uh, there's gastrointestinal, there's kidney, all of those are classic. And of course, adrenal, we've really talked about stress and hormonal in general. So we have to understand that insulin is a hormone first and foremost it's you know secreted by gland and so when it's not at the right level when it's either too high or too low it tends to start a cascade of uh stress hormones so we really want to have it at the right level to prevent that uh from happening could somebody have cardiovascular disease but have undetected insulin resistance and ultimately yes okay 100 yeah. percent. in fact it's very rare that anyone would have advanced cardiovascular disease without it. So this is what, you know, and I, even though I disagree with his premise about how to deal with it fully, although I agree with lots of it, like the omega-6 and the stress, et cetera, and the inflammation, um, I think that people like Ben who are popularizing this idea that insulin resistance is a big deal and a root cause of pretty much every chronic disease that we have in this modern age, they're 100% right because it is. and. One of those absolutely is heart disease. It's the number one or number two killer. And is it caused by it? Like a lot of these teachers are promoting. I think it is a little bit more complex than that because there's other root factors that we've talked about. But is it a cause? Uh, almost certainly. Does it correlate with it very, very, very frequently? Yes. Like meaning... Even if it's not the cause, it's very rare that you find someone with cardiovascular disease who doesn't have insulin resistance. They always go together. Okay, well then that brings me to my next questions because obviously we want to not promote something that's gonna cause insulin resistance. So where does intermittent fasting come in? So it depends on your strategy. If you wanna go for the uh, move the carpet above the stain and keep it there, <laughs> like, we, like you, uh, the analogy you used earlier, then it's a great part of that system. The problem is that you're having to raise your stress chemicals to do it, but it obviously has advantages and for some people it's beneficial. So yeah, it depends. It's trying to figure out whether something's like, yeah, helping or hindering what we're ultimately trying to achieve. My only recommendation would be almost everyone does intermittent fasting wrong from my perspective in when they do it. So there is no evidence to say that fasting in the morning is better than at night there's quite a lot of evidence although for some people it's not compelling enough that fasting at night is beneficial especially for losing fat um, and reducing obesity but almost everyone does it in the morning despite that why 
because when you're running on adrenaline, when your adrenaline is high, you do not feel hungry in the morning. You tend to feel hungry in the evening. And so that's why people just following their feelings. In this case, though, I would say that's super unhelpful because if you start the day and you don't eat something, if you want to eat your keto meal, that's fine. But if you don't have anything, no keto meal, no nothing, then so eating a keto meal will to some degree increase your stress chemicals because your body's still trying to find glucose, but not eating any meal, not having anything is going to release way more stress chemicals. And then if you throw a stimulant on top of that, like some people do, they just have coffee or something, then that's going to increase the stress chemicals even more. So I don't find the zero justification to me to, to fast in the morning specifically, unless of course you're just doing a whole day fast, then that's got to include the morning. But if you're only fasting part of the day, I see zero justification for doing it in the morning. It's much, much, much better to do it at night. Uh, it just makes sense logically that if you do it, in, if you fast in the morning, your body's going to need more energy because you're doing stuff. So it's going to have to liberate more stuff from storage, which I guess is why people do it because they want to burn more fat. But then if you're eating at night, or the evening, and then you're relaxing, you're not doing much after that, then your body's much more likely to store those calories as fat. So it just makes no sense to me. Um, if you're going to intermittent fast, 100% do it at night. Okay, yeah, good, good. Um, then with this, uh, speaking uh, to insulin resistance, if this is left untreated, then what would the knock-on effect be? I mean, we discussed it a little bit, I think in the signs and symptoms, you can see what's going down the path, but like, for our overall in our anti-aging health and vitality, you know, what degree are we really looking at damage here? Uh, pretty simple, premature aging, disease and death. Premature aging, disease and death. It's really as simple as that. Insulin resistance, I'm thoroughly convinced by looking at all sides that it absolutely is on a par with chronic unresolved stress as something that negatively affects every system every cell of your body uh, will make you age prematurely and will make you die sooner than if it is resolved so however be aware that just like with stress chemicals less is not always better we want to have the right level of insulin a lack of insulin is problematic as well uh, there are tests uh, there are research studies that show that uh, people with very low insulin levels, fasting insulin levels, actually have worse outcomes, health outcomes in various areas like neurological issues, Alzheimer's and stuff like that. So it's really about having it be low compared to normal, but still adequate. That's the optimal. Okay, yeah. Then with with having said what you just said as well, I mean, you mentioned that um, insulin is a hormone. What role do our hormones then also play in insulin resistance? Huge. From, I think, both people's perspective, but especially the perspective of people who say that carbs are not a bad thing, but you just need to learn how to utilize them correctly. So there's a couple of different challenges. First of all, if your stress chemicals are high, which could be for a few different reasons, I won't go over it all again. So if your cortisol is high, if your noradrenaline is high, then your body is freeing up breaking down muscle tissue and breaking down fat tissue. Breaking down fat tissue might seem like a good thing, but it means free fatty acids floating around your blood. If they consist of omega-6s, that's causing chronic inflammation. That's, you know, one of the reasons why it leads to all these diseases throughout every area of the body. Um, 
And even if it's not, it's blocking insulin from getting into the cell properly, exacerbating and increasing insulin resistance. Um, but, but also, it's getting you into a mode of stress, which then has a knock-on effect in all kinds of other areas. So another hormone that's for, not commonly thought of as a stress hormone, but really is, and it always goes hand-in-hand hand with stress, is estrogen. This is a big deal for both men and women. Uh, women tend to have higher estrogen, especially when they're younger, but by the time they're in their 40s, both men and women tend to have high estrogen in this day and age, and it's a very, very bad thing. Um, so, as I said, it goes hand in hand with stress. It is the other major fat accumulating hormone, along with insulin. So, if you have high estrogen and you have high insulin, and also if you have low thyroid hormone, so thyroid hormone will tend to oppose those two, but if you have low estrogen and if you, sorry, if you have high estrogen, you have high cortisol and you have high insulin, then you will tend to have low thyroid hormone um, and you'll tend to have low dopamine and you'll tend to have low GABA. So what does that actually mean? Let me translate them. So insulin, disease, get, you know, weight gain around your waist. And these are in practical terms, uh, estrogen, you know, fat gain around other areas of your body, um, much greater chance of cellular mutation disease that can kill you, let's put it that way. Um, and for women, all kinds of other hormonal issues as well. Um, and reduction of progesterone, reduction of DHEA, reduction of dopamine, reduction of GABA, reduction of testosterone, uh, reduction of thyroid hormones, all the hormones that are good for you. So I know I'm throwing a lot of them out there and we've talked about these in detail in different episodes, but basically I don't want to simplify it this way because it can be unhelpful, but I think ultimately it's true. So I think it is helpful. There's kind of good hormones and bad hormones. Now, the reality is every hormone is good or bad depending on if you have too much, but it's more a case of hormones that tend to be excessive and cause problems and hormones that tend to be lacking and cause problems, right? So in the case of insulin, in the case of estrogen, in the case of cortisol, uh, in the case of glucogen as well, in the case of noradrenaline, the issue is usually it's excessive and that causes problems. In the case of thyroid hormone, in the case of dopamine, in the case of progesterone, in the case of testosterone, in the case of DHEA, it tends to go down with age and go down as we become less and less healthy and that causes a problem. So... How does it relate to hormones? Insulin going too high will set off, a, even if everything's perfect, let's say all your hormones are perfect, you're youthful, you're great, and then your insulin goes too high, that will set off a chain reaction that probably ultimately will eventually make all of those hormones bad. So why is my testosterone low? Maybe it all started with insulin and insulin is stopping it getting better. For a woman, why is my progesterone low? Maybe it all started insulin and insulin stopping getting better. Why is my stress so high, right? Why is my cortisol and my noradrenaline so high? Maybe it all started with insulin. Why, you know, uh, do I feel cold? Why do I feel sluggish? Why do I feel low in energy? Why is it so hard to lose weight? Maybe because your thyroid hormone is too low and that's all started with excess insulin. So it's all kind of tied together um, and generally when you're trying to resolve the issue you kind of got to kind of work with whatever's going on for you but let's say the main thing you're aware of is excess estrogen 
you know, or the main thing you're aware of is excess uh, uh, cortisol. But it tends to be that the root issues that have to be resolved, otherwise nothing else would be resolved, is this. The cortisol and the insulin has to go in under control, it has to go down. And then the thyroid and the sex hormone, either testosterone, progesterone, has to go up to get to a good level. That's the minimum of what you need to do. And so um, that's kind of how they're interrelated. Now, that's hormones, but there's other factors. So inflammation. Inflammation can be caused by omega-6s, like we talked about earlier. It can be caused by any kind of dysfunction of the immune system, like we've talked about in detail in episodes about that. It can be caused by any poison in the body that we've dedicated episodes to, whether it's heavy metals, whether it's pesticides, whether it's mold toxins. Um, uh, so inflammation, when it's chronically high, can trigger everything I just said. Thyroid low, testosterone low, progesterone low, estrogen high, cortisol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So inflammation can be one of those root cause issues. Even serotonin. How would serotonin get so excessively high? Through gut dysbiosis. Yeah, I was going to say, Owen, isn't serotonin supposed to be a good or a good thing? Well, we covered that in detail in the Is Serotonin Good episode, right? We did almost two hours on that. But um, yeah, generally, let's say everything's bad when it's in the wrong range, right? So let's just say excessive serotonin, whatever that is, ultimately can start off this chain reaction to make everything else imbalanced. And that often relates to uh, uh, gut dysbiosis. Uh, even growth hormone. Growth hormone is trendy these days and considered to be cool. Um, a lot of people take it, either growth hormone or growth hormone peptides. I've played with them myself, uh, just the peptides, not the growth hormone. Um, but growth hormone can lead to insulin resistance. And it's one of the reasons why you want to be careful uh, with growth, growth hormone, um, with supplementing it. Certainly, natural levels tend to not cause uh, excessive amounts that could lead to insulin resistance, but taking substances, whether it's taking growth hormone, taking MK677, these strong growth hormone boosters absolutely can contribute to or even lead to insulin resistance if you do enough of them. So it's another hormone that's important. Um, and then probably last thing on my list, which I'd say is really important, is hypoxia. So if a person um, is having an insufficient level of oxygen going into their cells then that can start this whole process because then the person is not efficiently producing ATP from glucose. Then it kind of throws everything out of balance. Your body's trying to get more energy. It'll do it through everything we talked about before. It'll pull uh, amino acids out of the muscles to try and turn that into glucose. It will uh, break down fat to try and turn that into glucose. It's like a whole chain reaction again. Um, and this tends to occur because of a lack of carbon dioxide. And that's a whole thing. We should probably do an episode on carbon dioxide um, and why it's so important. But carbon dioxide, by some people in the know, actually is considered to be a hormone. It's one of the most important, certainly, uh, elements in the body. And it's absolutely crucial for energy production. And it's absolutely crucial for the proper utilization of glucose. And when glucose is not being properly utilized, that's when you tend to have dysregulation with glucose, which can easily end up in a situation with stress chemicals being high, too many fatty acids in the blood, causing insulin resistance. Now, I know that's complicated, but 
I'd mention all these because these are all factors. Any one of them can set off a chain reaction. So if you're like, oh yeah, I know I'm estrogen dominant or I know I have systemic inflammation or I know I have gut bio dysbiosis or actually I've been taking loads of growth hormone or you know, I know I have hypoxia or I know that I'm, you know, have high levels of stress chemicals. Any of those things could be the root thing that contributes to or even causes insulin resistance. And then insulin resistance causes everything else. <laughs> That's not already <laughs> wrong yet, as we talked about before. So you can see why this theory is less popular than the other one. The other one's a lot more simple, right? Very simple, yes. Yep, yep. Don't so have carbs. <laughs> Don't have carbs. Okay. Exercise, sure. Don't eat for some of the time. Simple, right? And it all makes sense. The only challenge with it is, and the reason why I wasn't happy to do an episode on blood sugar and insulin resistance that just said that is because, as I said, people who do that, a year later, two years later, five years later, 10 years later, they haven't healed their insulin resistance issue. In fact, they've often made it worse. So if we want to look at the root issues, that's not as simple. It's pretty complicated with all those hormones and situations like inflammation and hypoxia. But that, I would say, is really the root of it, is my understanding. And so I want to do a separate episode on, for people who are interested in what I'm saying, who are like, okay, Elwin, how do I get my body to be able to use glucose again without it you know all going wrong i want to do a separate episode on that like restoring optimal glucose metabolism because as i said earlier unfortunately it's not going to involve just believing me and starting to eat loads of carbs again that's not going to work because you still have insulin resistance if you're not used to having insulin and you've made it worse by not having carbs then your response to the carbs is going to be even worse than it was maybe before you stopped eating carbs. You're going to feel terrible. You're going to say, you're going to curse me. So I'm not recommending that at all. What I am recommending is to start with resolving all those hormonal issues I talked about earlier. And if you don't know where to start, test, right? Test for gut dysbiosis. Test for systemic inflammation. Test if you have high estrogen. Test if you have low thyroid. Test if you have low testosterone. Test if you have low progesterone. Test if you have high cortisol. Those are all things you can test. And then you can see, huh. And of course, how do you interpret those tests? We've done episodes on that, right? Often what they consider okay is actually very far from optimal. Um, but I would work on optimizing those things first before considering introducing in um, more carbohydrate if you're used to not having carbohydrate. And absolutely the things I talked about earlier, cut out the omega-6s completely. They take years to detoxify from your body. So if you're like, I just want to stay keto or keto-ish for now because it's working for me, then great, do so. Do not start eating carbs just because I've given you this theory, but do look at resolving a lot of these root cause issues, I would say. We definitely have to do that episode, Owen. <laughs> we have to do that episode. It's even more complicated than this. That's yeah. the only challenge. Oh, uh, but for yeah. sure. <laughs> then now I'm going to throw another one in there. Genetics must play a huge role in this. They absolutely do. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and they also absolutely play a role in uh, which type of fuel we deal with better. So despite everything I've just said, some people... I mentioned it already earlier that some people are much better with elevated stress chemicals than others because 
they don't raise too much and they break them down easily. So that's one genetic component that makes a huge difference. Another genetic component is just how well we ha handle carbohydrates. So there are some people who have a genetic tendency to handle carbohydrates well, to go through the uh, aerobic phosphorylation, to get loads of ATP out of it, to not have insulin buildup, all the good stuff. And there are some people who genetically are not so good, who tend to go into the bad type of carbohydrate metabolism and create too much lactic acid in their system um, and you know get a buildup of insulin and then all the rest of it. So there's absolutely a genetic component as well. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, ketogenic diets absolutely do work great for some people. But you know what? Ketogenic diet's trendy at the moment. You may have tried it and it just didn't work for you. It's probably also a big reason for that is because... Um, you know, you would do better with more carbohydrates. So everything I just said is like talking about a blank slate person, but depending on our ancestry and our, you know, ancestors' environments and stuff like that, we did adapt to different situations. So some people, even if it, even if the theory is right and ketosis is not the optimal state to be in, if your ancestors really adapted to that, maybe it's the best situation for you, right? Whereas for other people, the opposite may be true. So genetics definitely have a big impact. Genetics also have a big impact on all the other stuff I just talked about. A tendency to high stress, a tendency to low thyroid, a tendency to high estrogen, a tendency to high serotonin, a tendency to high uh, inflammation, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those potential root cause issues um, can be created by or exacerbated by genes. And so... Absolutely, it's a great thing to test. We have a, a blood sugar collection for genetic insights where I talk, you know, most of the factors, probably all the factors we talked about today are part of that collection. So you can see, you know, do I have a tendency for uh, insulin resistance? Uh, that is actually one of the reports that we have. So it's as simple as that. But then, you know, do I also have a tendency for high fasting insulin? Do I have a tendency for high sugar, you know, HbA1c? Um, and then also all the other stuff that, relates to it like we just talked about how well do i process carbohydrates how do i deal with stress all the rest of it we're going to take a quick break to share with you one of our amazing sponsors genetic insights what makes genetic insights uniquely valuable is that they test over 83 million different variants which guarantees a 99.7 percent accuracy on all of their dna reports with over 100 reports available you get comprehensive insights into what your dna is telling you about how to optimize your health today and in the future. I found reviewing my results to be incredibly accurate and applying some of the recommendations which are personalized to your individual DNA to be extremely helpful for me and my family. I also loved how easy it was to upload my raw DNA data that I already had from previously using Ancestry.com because Genetic Insights supports uploading raw data from all major platforms. To get your health reports, go to geneticinsights.co and get 20% off today by using coupon code rejuvenate. Remember that supporting our sponsors supports our podcast, which allows us to keep sharing this important information with you free of cost. So go get your Genetic Insights health reports by going to geneticinsights.co and use coupon code rejuvenate for 20% off today. 
So the, the reports can give us the tendency that we're going to have towards those things. And then we've also identified some signs and symptoms earlier, and we talked about testing with the glucose um, you know, monitor to see what our blood glucose is. But how do we really know if we have insulin resistance? How do we find that out? Yeah, it's a good question. So a lot of the kind of signs I said earlier, like classic. So if you have hypertension, if you have a lot of weight, especially around your belly, if you have skin tags, you know, um, I think a lot of even medical doctors with absence of testing would consider that enough to give a diagnosis. But obviously testing is ideal. Now the medical community doesn't actually agree on this um, because as I said, this insulin resistance, even though I'm saying it's kind of like well-known, it's only really well-known in our kind of community. It's not mainstream well-known um, how important this insulin resistance is for all these, uh, you know, as a root cause factor for all these different chronic diseases. So, um, Testing blood sugar is one thing, but testing insulin is another one. And you really have to do both for insulin resistance. Testing blood sugar is super easy, as we talked about. Testing insulin is not. So if you really want to test, the best thing I've come across is called a uh, HOMA IR test, H-O-M-A-I-R. And so what that basically is, is a little equation, a little formula to give you a calculation for insulin resistance. So let me explain. What you would do is first thing in the morning, you, after, you know, not eating preferably just before you go to bed, so you've been fasting for a little bit at least, take a, a blood test, which is simple to do. You can use the kits, which are easily available, as I said, from any pharmacy, from Amazon or whatever, which are sold for diabetics to use. So that's pretty simple. You do a little pinprick thing and then you put a little microchip um inside a little machine that then talks to you and it says put in the blood sample and then you just do a little drop of your blood you put it on this microchip thing and it like counts down five four three two one and it says this is your reading so that's simple maybe i made it sound too difficult but it's easy you can do um, you know you can watch a youtube video about exactly how to do it follow along and as i said very cheap now the insulin test is none of those things you you know maybe the company you usually use doesn't provide it or the provider the the healthcare practitioner you use doesn't offer it so you may have to look for it but it's certainly available you know in in most uh, places you just have to look for it so you want to do that and this is the crucial thing you want to do that insulin test at the same time as you test your blood sugar the blood sugar results you'll get in 10 seconds the insulin results you might not get for a week but you've got to remember the blood sugar one so write them down and then get your insulin results then so you write both of those down so I'll give you an example, like when I did mine. So when I did mine, my blood sugar was uh, uh, about six on my scale, which is the rest of the world scale. In, in yours, it would be 108. I've got a little card in front of me here that translates them. So rest of the world reading, my blood sugar was six. Your US reading, Christy, it was 108. Then I got my insulin test results back eventually. My insulin test results just said less than two. So I'm going to count that as two. <laughs> uh, basically, it's such a small unit of measurement that it, they couldn't refine it any more than that. I talked about how difficult insulin is to test. So then there's a formula that you apply to it. So uh, the rest of the world formula would be six, in my case, that was my sugar score, times two, that was my insulin score, so that's 12, and then divided by 22.5. So it's insulin times glucose. So six times two is 12 divided by 22.5. That was about 0 0.6, 0 0.6, something like that. Um, you want your score to be less than one. 
So that told me I do not have insulin resistance. Um, now, if I was American and I had exactly the same readings, I would have insulin too. That's the same throughout the world. And then my glucose score by an American uh, chart is uh, 110. So then it would be um, 2 times 110, which would be 220 divided by 4 or 5. So it's about the same. So you see, like, the equations will both end up the same. It's just you have to use a different divided by depending on what your blood sugar reading is. So that's how you do it. So that's your HOMA IR score. You want it to be below 1. From what I've seen, that is the best test for insulin resistance. What is it telling us? How does it work? It's basically saying, look, if your insulin is not that high and your blood sugar is not that high, you don't have insulin resistance. It's as simple as that. Um, <laughs> if your insulin is high um, or if your glucose is really high, it's a good sign of insulin resistance. Now, so that's the standard test. What I would say, though, is if your insulin is like, say, 2 and it was your blood glucose that is, you know, um, let's say double what I said, so like 15 or something, um, then that does indicate more type 2 diabetes. That's what I would say. So this is my refinement to this standard test, which doctors teach. Whereas if it's the other way around, if it's your insulin that's high, but it's your glucose that's not crazy high, then to me that indicates more insulin resistance so insulin really is the key factor but glucose also matters i guess that would be uh, my summation of that um i did the test again uh a w like a while later and it was like 2.4 something like that so still that would give a result where you know well lower than one i also wanted to try it because the test result was so low i was like well maybe i've tried two diabetes right because technically that is that could just be that you have such low insulin that your pancreas isn't producing it. So I did another test uh, when I just eaten and the insulin was like, can't remember, 12, 20, something like that. So obviously my body is capable of producing insulin. It just wasn't doing it when there was no food around, when I was fasting. This is correct. This is what you want. You want when you eat a food of carbs, that you have plenty of insulin. And then later, there is no insulin left or very little. That's what you want. That's what those kind of test results would show you. If your insulin is low fasting and after a meal, that's more classic real diabetes. If your insulin is high fasting um, and after a meal, that's more classic insulin resistance. Well, things I've seen it change a little bit more these days. And so this is where I want to ask you the question, because usually what we've associated or identified is that people who are diabetic have type 2 diabetes, it, it, you know, that they're overweight, they have a terrible diet, they're eating fast food all the time, things like that are going on. But what we're seeing a lot these days is a lot of people who are normal weight are tending to get classed as pre-diabetic. Now, why is that? Okay, so there's two different things you said there. So doesn't necessarily have excess fat and then eats a healthy diet. So there are definitely people who have insulin resistance who don't have excess fat in their body. Um, again, from the keto perspective, that maybe doesn't make sense. But from the other perspective, why I just said it does, because if you think about it, if someone's in a very high stress state, one of the things that could be going on is that they will keep breaking down fat cells, uh, lipolysis, into free fatty acids and releasing them into the bloodstream, right? So 
person could be in a situation where they have a lot of insulin resistance and yet they have very little excess fat in their body because they have that tendency and that tendency is partly genetic for some people um although cortisol and adrenaline both do that process of uh, uh, lipolysis and gluconeogenesis my understanding is adrenaline does it more and so if a person has especially a tendency to high adrenaline and noradrenaline then they have a tendency to have a low appetite they often have digestive issues and i think they also although i haven't seen this proven they also have um, elevated lipolysis so they'll especially have a tendency to break down fat cells and have the fats go into the bloodstream so again if that theory as to what causes insulin resistance is right then that makes sense because the high stress and the high amounts of fats going into the bloodstream cause insulin resistance right now in terms of the question people with a healthy diet it's possible because as we just said like highly elevated f stress chemicals can ultimately cause the situation but what i will say is that i don't know how often it happens to people who have never had high omega-6s in their diet and i use the term never because you might even be talking about someone who hasn't had them in their diet for i don't know five years but they one of the problems with omega-6s is they hang around forever they're very very difficult for the body to get rid of so and this is one of the reasons i think that as i said the people 100 years ago they were eating sugar some of them had a sedentary lifestyle they were eating way more calories than us and yet n almost none of them are obese almost none of them had insulin resistance well not only did they not regularly eat omega-6s they had never eaten omega-6s right so i think this is a factor now remember a lot of time when people want to be healthy what do they do especially early in the stage right they start eating more vegetable oils or maybe they start eating low fat diet but the fat that is there will tend to be vegetables maybe they're eating a lot of nuts and seeds because those are healthy for you um you know a lot of time they're eating packaged food of gluten-free this or you know whatever but, but you know with healthy sunflower oil so I think it's pretty rare. I don't know if you would ever meet someone who hadn't had a lot of omega-6s for a long time in this day and age. And so, and I think it's not that common that you meet someone who hasn't had omega-6s for, you know, many in the years even. Even that is fairly unusual. And in fact, when people do do that, often the way that they do it is to either go full keto, full like, high carb right maybe fruitarian maybe something like that or maybe like ultra paleo you know like no nuts and seeds even like extreme paleo and often those people do get better from insulin resistance so this you know i don't know like healthy diet maybe healthier than most people yes but super strictly for a very long time with no omega-6s no other things that suppress thyroid function you know like that's pretty rare that people do that like you know another thing is um in terms of thyroid functions a lot of people want to eat a healthy diet they eat loads of cruciferous vegetables um and they often consume a lot of soy both of those things are goitrogenic they absolutely uh suppress thyroid function and you know reduce the metabolism and this again in a indirect roundabout way can start that process of needing to release more stress in order to have enough energy which can lead to the same issue so um yeah i mean the short answer i guess is it's still possible because your stress can be high enough to create the 
situation. But the long answer is uh, more what I said. So other than that, other than the Amiga 6s and the stress, the last factor is poisons, right? So um, when a person has a high levels of poisons in their body, it dysregulates everything, including the insulin system. So I haven't heard um, anyone talk about this in the insulin world, but I have seen people talk about it in the detoxification world, that when you have high levels of various poisons especially the fat soluble ones that we talked about before like heavy metals um, like mycotoxins then those poisons can also increase insulin resistance by reducing insulin sensitivity so that would be the only other case where i would see someone um, who has insulin resistance despite like a literally perfect diet and you know, not having any excess body fat, that could be another way that it manifests. That happens more commonly than we think. So I haven't seen examples of that, but I would be happy to bet money on that if I did find an example of someone who'd never had omega sixes and was having, you know, fairly low stress and still had insulin resistance, I would be immediately, let's do like a full toxicity panel. And I would be very, very surprised if something didn't come up there. So that'd be the other factor. Yeah, and that's a good point because then if somebody is doing everything right and then suddenly they're just like, what's going on? It's not, not working for me. Then they'd potentially just go in to look at your toxicity and look at what else could be in there that, that's causing or stopping them from, from having that optimal health. Yes, and this is one of the other factors that I haven't seen any of these people who discuss insulin talking about, but which I think is super important, which is that the most difficult to deal with toxins tend to be stored in the fat cells. And so the other problem of breaking down fat cells and releasing those free fatty acids into the bloodstream is that along with that, you're going to be releasing all the poisons that were in storage, um, which then will create inflammation in you know, all the arteries and the blood vessels and all the rest of it. And to the degree that they you know, connect to the cells beyond the um, circulatory system will then completely mess with and dysregulate the um, uh, cells. Now, you asked a question much earlier about exactly how do those free fatty acids cause insulin resistance. And I said, I don't know if anyone knows, they just observe that they do. It is possible that it's actually not the free fatty acids, but the poisons that come with the free fatty acids that really cause the lack of insulin sensitivity that stop the insulin being able to get in. And it's possible that it's a combination of the two. And of course, there is a type of fat that acts like a poison. So this is a crossover, which is the omega-6s. So it could be the free fats in general being excessive in the bloodstream. It could be the poisonous fats, and it could be the poison stored within the fat. And it could be a combination of all three. Really good, really good. So overall, looking at it, as we've, as you've unpacked the different theories that are, that are here, it's, it's more readily understandable how two very different uh, ways of eating, you want to call them diets or something like that, could or do potentially help people, maybe not the right word resolve, especially in one instance, but help them not um, express the symptoms of insulin resistance in this way, correct? Yes. And if just feeling better um, and eating a low-carb diet is good enough for you, and especially if it suits you genetically, then I would not get in the way of that. If that suits you, if you're able to maintain it and it works for you, fantastic. But 
This is more speaking to everyone who maybe it doesn't work for or they're not able to maintain it. Maybe they feel guilty, like to understand that there's more to it. So now I want to go quickly um, into timing of meals. I know we touched on intermittent fasting before and you gave some really great um, pointers there and things like that. But I want to look at the frequency of meals and see if there is something that may be um, better or worse or like are smaller meals going to, you know, smaller, more frequent meals going to impact somebody that potentially has insulin resistance in a negative way? Or, you know, is it better to wait and have a longer time in between meals? So can you talk just a little bit about frequency? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this in great depth in um, hypoglycemia, and I would really give exactly the same advice for this. Um, the factors that you've got to balance are if you wait too long to eat, then your blood sugar could drop, your body could overproduce stress chemicals, your body could overproduce insulin in response to the sugars that are poured into the blood supply as a result of the stress chemicals. It's a whole mess. So that's not good to wait too long. However, eating too frequently means that your body never gets a chance to do its self-cleansing mechanisms it's autophagy it's ampk mode all those words if you don't know what that means it's fine but referencing for those who do but basically a cellular cleansing so your body has like an anabolic or a catabolic mode insulin is very much an anabolic thing and so is glucose so if you constantly have even not too high but high-ish levels of those in your bloodstream because you're constantly eating you're never going through that catabolic mode where your body is breaking down old cells, re cleaning them out, uh, replacing them. And so that's not good from a longevity point of view. All the people who promote fasting and it's, whether it's intermittent fasting or more extended fasting, they have a point. There is a lot of benefit to it. The downside is all the stuff we've talked about today, but there is a big upside to it, which is why they do it. And which is why, at least for some people, it's a good idea. So fasting may not suit you. You may not it may not be a good idea for you to go a week without food, but it may be a good idea for you to go five hours without food, right? That's kind of the compromise. And so, you know, I like to do every five or six hours being vaguely active. I think if people are very active, like lifting stuff all day, whether it's a moving person or a bricklayer or whatever, then maybe every three to four hours might be more suitable. If someone's very sedentary, then maybe even longer, like seven to eight hours might be more suitable. But you know, something something along those lines would be what I genuinely recommend. And and the small meals, yes, if you have a small meal with a, a lower glycemic load, it is true you are releasing less insulin, but you're still releasing some. And so it, it's still a lot more than nothing. It still completely shuts off those catabolic kind of recycling processes. So that is why I prefer not to have a large meal that overloads the digestive system, but medium to large so you've got plenty of fuel for quite a few hours without overloading the digestive system but then so that you know during the kind of tail end of that when your stomach is empty of food your body can go into more of a catabolic process and do some some kind of housekeeping before you start stimulating the insulin again by eating again. So let's say somebody's identified that they have this, they've done the, they've tested their glucose and their insulin at the same time. They've done the HOMA IR test that you recommended. You know, is that it? Do they have to live with it for the rest of their life or is this reversible? Well, as I said, I reversed mine, um, but I wasn't very far along. So um, is it, f it depends on your definition. This is always, you know, depending on your definition of cure, this is always the issue of contention. 
Um, if by cure you mean go back to all the bad habits I had before and feel okay like I used to, maybe not. If you mean being able to have a high quality of life, not being overweight, not having hypertension, not having stress and all those things while living a reasonably healthy but normal lifestyle, yes, I would say in most cases that's absolutely possible um, depending on how far gone obviously the situation is. Um, generally, the more medical interventions you've had, the harder it is to recover. Uh, not that those, you know, they can be life-saving, but I'm just saying, unfortunately, if it's got far enough that you've had a lot of medical in interventions, that doesn't make it harder and harder to fully resolve the issue. But uh, it's at least possible to massively improve it by doing what I would recommend. Let me ask you this, because there's one question you get asked. Well, how long is it going to take? <laughs> um <laughs> How long is a piece of string? Um, it's uh, it can be. Look, how long can it? How long does it take to reduce insulin resistance if you have it moderately? Not long. I would say if you really follow all the advice that you know we'll do at the end here, it could be a few days. Now, if you're very far along, if you weigh four hundred pounds, if you know your home IR score is like five instead of below one. You know, obviously, it's going to take longer. Um, it will at least, you don't have to lose all the excess fat, but you've got to lose quite a lot of it because the problem is the more fat you have in your body, um, the more insulin resistance you have. This is, again, something that both camps are going to agree on, even if they agree for different reasons. So um, it'll take at least as long as it'll take to redress that balance between muscle and fat. And so if the balance between muscle and fat and your body is already fairly good, as you said, there are many people with insulin resistance where it is not bad at all, then it could be pretty quick. If there's a big imbalance between fat and muscle in your body, then it's going to take longer until that gets more into balance. So then I guess as well, it's like identifying the right kind of program for yourself about making sure that you are putting on that muscle instead of diminishing your yeah. muscle and that is why i'd recommend eating as i said in the same way that someone who's hypoglycemic is even if you're not because the whole point of that is to stop your blood sugar dropping low because as we talked about unfortunately when your blood sugar drops low the first thing that your body tends to break down for fuel is not fat it's actually muscle and this is why people who diet and all the rest of it uh, or who fast they often it's the muscle mass that they lose not the fat and so the best way actually to lose the fat is to increase the muscle. Now, I'm not saying necessarily you need to be doing strength training and resistance training and stuff like that. It depends what situation you're in. Again, if you're 400 pounds, you almost certainly shouldn't be doing that because of the risk of injury. Um, probably just walking would be a starting point. But walking's great. Walking's a really good form of exercise. Uh, a lot of people go from not moving to like punishing themselves at the gym and then they give up after two weeks. Um, gentle walking, if it's like half an hour a day, can really start to shift that difference between the two. And sure, if it's five minutes a day to start with, that's great too, right? Um, and I, I would not consider actually more intensive exercise until you can walk for at least half an hour feeling fine, right? Not out of breath, not anything. Then could resistance training be good, you know, starting gently? Absolutely. Could cardiovascular training be useful? Absolutely. Could something that's a bit of a hybrid, like high-intensity interval training? Absolutely. 
but you need to be careful of all those not to push it too hard first of all because um if you become too depleted of of your stores of glucose then your body will go right back into the stress mode which will screw it up and second of all if you just push yourself really hard irrespective of sugar your body will go into stress mode which will set you back again so this is why i'm talking about gently increasing it not going overboard starting with gentle walking and so you can easily walk quickly for half an hour an hour and only at that stage doing anything more intense you want it you want everything you do to be not a big deal if you're like punishing yourself pushing yourself really hard it may help you lose weight it may help you to gain muscle but it won't really resolve the issue of everything we're talking about because it's it increases the stress chemicals too much and it will cause your body to break down muscle tissue again in many cases and you can kind of try and prevent that by having loads of you know protein powders and amino acids and you know creatine and all kinds of strategies that people do um, that will reduce that breakdown of the muscle but in the end it's preferable to just not get into a stress state would be my ultimate um, perspective on it let me give some like everyone would agree no-brainer advice to, to finish off right so Burberry, I mentioned it earlier, Five mil 500 milligrams, two to three times a day is a no-brainer. Just that in and of itself, there's loads of studies that show it will uh, significantly reduce fasting insulin after a few weeks. This will benefit you even if you are 400 pounds, even if you're eating this or that or whatever, it just helps. Obviously, if you're not doing anything else, it's going to help to a certain degree. And also, you're going to keep taking it. Otherwise, it will go right back to how it was. So it's not a solution, but it is going to help you feel better so you can then do other stuff, which is going to help you. So I'm a big fan of Burberry. And of course, it's got you know the potential longevity benefits of using it long term. So even if um, you know some people don't want to take supplements a long time, but if you're really interested, you know, preventing premature aging, living to be as, you know, healthy as possible it's something to consider anyway Burberry inositol is really good as well uh, I talked about that before for that one 1200 between 1000 2000 milligrams something like that uh, that's a good amount to have I don't think that matters if you have it with food or not that can work either way uh, some people find it a little bit relaxing but the effect is pretty mild so you might want to have it nearer the end of the day than the beginning um, so other than that um reducing omega-6s we've talked about that everyone agrees with that it's something that's so easy to not do because they just put in everything all the processed food any any food that you eat in a restaurant any food that you eat out of a packet pretty much is going to have it at a restaurant you can kind of ask them to like only cook with butter or coconut oil or something like that but you know a lot of them are not going to be cooperative, unfortunately, or look at you like, oh, God. I think you just made a really good point there, though, Elwin, is that you may be thinking you're doing really well, but you're going to go out to the restaurant, you're going to eat, you've got to be, you got to check what kind of oils they're using to cook with, correct? Because otherwise, you may think, oh, I'm really limiting or not, don't, not having any omega-6, but it could be totally the opposite by ordering out or going to restaurants. 100%, yeah. And this is absolutely why I went wrong before, Chrissy. I was feeling so healthy and good a few years ago that I was just, you know, eating out freely and it was like healthy restaurants and stuff like that but healthy restaurants does not mean low omega-6s this is not caught on the culture yet right low gluten is quite easy to achieve these days low sugar is easy-ish to achieve these days low omega-6s is very very difficult this is not caught on yet in the popular culture and yet it's actually 
by far the most important thing of all. Um, from you know my perspective, and as I say, from these people who are teaching insulin resistance perspective, it's it's way worse for you than almost anything. As I said, obviously, some people would say sugar is terrible for you, but some people are curing themselves while eating loads of sugar. I haven't heard of anyone who's curing themselves eating loads of seed oils. That's it's just <laughs> not the way it works. It's not possible. Um, and again, people 100 years ago, like think about your grandparents or great grandparents. Were they eating sugar? Loads, right? My parents were all the time. My grandparents, rather. Um, but Omega 60s just didn't exist. And, you know, and, well, definitely the 40s, and they weren't really popular until the 80s. And the 80s is where the chronic diseases and obesity started skyrocketing. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it's a major factor. Um, and it's one that we're just not thinking of. So, What's the best alternative? Probably coconut oil, um, because not everyone does very well with normal saturated fat either, like butter and, and lard and tallow and stuff like that. Um, again, we do a genetic report on that. Some people, they don't process saturated fat very well. Coconut oil has a fairly unique type of fat called MCTs, um, which your body processes differently, and it can much more easily turn into instant energy. So... Coconut oil really is the best or MCT oil for energy in most cases. I am not a big fan of having it on its own because it can cause uh, gastrointestinal problems. But if you just use it instead of like normal cooking oils, it's, you know, infinitely preferable in the vast majority of cases. So those are no-brainer things. The last one may be difficult, the, the removing the omega-6s, but those are no-brainer things that pretty much everyone who knows about this stuff agrees on. So that's easy. Now, beyond that, pick your strategy. If eating no carb or extremely low carb works for you, if intermittent fasting works for you, then great, do that. If intense exercising works for you, then great, do that. But if you find you have a lot of resistance to exercise, if you feel exhausted afterwards, if you're more likely to get ill, all these kind of side effects that have been proven to happen with excess exercise, then just consider the fact that what's excessive for you may not be what your personal trainer thinks is excessive, right? Or, or whoever you're listening to, right? Your coach and your peloton or whatever. Like they're like, go, go, go. And for them, it's totally fine. And for you, that's spiking your stress chemicals and it's building up too much lactic acid and your body's not able to deal with it well. So exercise 100% yes, but make it reasonable for you. But don't rest in your laurels. Don't think, oh, for the rest of my life, I'm only gonna, ever going to walk. But like increase it gradually and gently and you know i'm not saying you don't want to exert yourself but what i'm saying is you don't want to feel exhausted afterwards i think that's the key thing if afterwards you feel ah no big deal i feel good i can carry on doing whatever i normally do that's the right level of exercise if afterwards you feel oh my god i just want to collapse that was probably too much at least from this point of view right um now all the hormones i talked about i won't go into detail about this because I talked about it, but test for cortisol, test for estrogen. Those are simple blood tests you can do. Are they, do you want both of those to be kind of the lower half of the reference range? If they're in the upper half or even above the reference range, that's a red flag in terms of what we're talking about here. That's something that you want to address. I won't talk about how to address them here. We talked about that in different episodes. Inflammation. Uh, there's the high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein. That's a standard blood test, cheap, easy to get. Um, you can have systemic inflammation and still have a very low score for that. 
But if you actually have an elevated score for that, you definitely have systemic inflammation. And that's something to consider and think about how can I reduce it? Uh, we, I've you know done two episodes on that on the chronic pain and inflammation. There's lots of strategies suggested there. Serotonin, we did a whole episode on that. Uh, not easy to test for in terms of blood tests, but kind of easy to test for in terms of how you feel. So you can consider that one. Um, growth hormone, that's kind of a bit of a niche one, but if you've been doing loads of growth hormone, that could be the problem. Consider cutting it out. Um, hypoxia, if you often feel short of breath, if you notice that you are uh, breathing a lot, even when you are at rest, um, you know, I remember someone came here to draw blood a while ago and they were just like, <gasps> just sitting down. I was like, that's not a good sign. That person is struggling with hypoxia. Um, so what's the opposite of hypoxia? Being able to hold your breath for a long time and it being no big deal. So the more that you're <gasps> straining for breath, the more probably oxygen depleted your cells are. And the more that you're able to hold a breath for a long time and no big deal is probably that you don't have hypoxia. Um, and then I would also test the positive stuff. So this is going into the recommendations of positive stuff to do. I would test thyroid, I would test progesterone, and I would test testosterone. And I would also test vitamin D, which despite the name vitamin D, a lot of people these days would consider it to be a hormone. If any of these are low, I would recommend substituting them, supplementing them. Um, these are big topics that I've talked about in different episodes. So I'll refer you to those if the test results show up as suboptimal. And also refer you to those to find out how to tell if they're suboptimal, um, how to interpret your lab test results. So um, vitamin K2 is something that I would always have with vitamin D. I've seen some evidence as well that it can help with insulin sensitivity specifically. So those two are really great together. Vitamin B1 is probably the number one vitamin for glucose um, utilization, for blood sugar regulation, for energy production from glucose. Um, it is often recommended, I've noticed, even by the keto diet people and certainly by the carb diet people, it's very hard to get enough vitamin B1 in diet. It's so hard that about just over 100 years ago, the government mandated it had to be added to all grains because the deficiency of it was so common. But ironically, a lot of people who want to eat healthily don't eat a lot of grains. And so they end up even more deficient in B1 than the average person. Stress uses up B1. Carbohydrate metabolism uses up B1. Having toxicity uses up B1. Um, these are all things that we have, you know, an excess of in our modern life compared to our ancestors. So we just need more B1. Um, possibly the best form of it is benfotiamine, which is uh, like a fat-soluble version of B1. B1 is usually water-soluble. Benfotiamine is the number one supplement that, other than metformin and berberine, that I'd recommend to anyone with diabetes. Um, it's usually used to reduce the symptoms of neuropathy, um, but it also just helps the health of the nervous system in general. It helps with glucose metabolism in general. I would absolutely recommend it to anyone who has any blood sugar issues, including insulin resistance, like extra. It's very hard to get enough from food. There's a lot of foods where if you just have something, you get loads of it. Like, you know, if you want loads of zinc, it's not easy to get, but if you have oysters, there's loads of it, you know, or, or whatever. Um, if you want K2, most foods don't have it, but if you have like cheese, it has a lot of it. There's really no food that's really high in B1 that you can just load up on B, 
like you can really top up your b1 by having that food so it's one of the things that i'd recommend to supplement um, obviously you know vitamin d you can get from some k2 you can get from um as i said fermented food but b1 is really hard to get b3 especially in the form of niacinamide um is very beneficial as well it actually helps to reduce the level of free fatty acids in your blood the thing that we talked about earlier so it can help with insulin resistance by actually addressing the root cause uh, b3 in general niacin is also an essential part again of that energy metabolism turning glucose into energy and so if you struggle with that then supporting that with b3 can be really great magnesium is useful for pretty much everything recommended for pretty much everything it's involved in uh i used to be a 300 i recently i've seen a thousand different processes in the body it just seems to be growing the more they're discovering what uh, magnesium can do um zinc similarly does a huge amount of different processes in the body but glucose metabolism is one of them so i'd recommend zinc salt um salt is often something that will help to balance blood sugar if people feel like low blood sugar if they feel shaky often salt will uh, just resolve that it has a lot of different mechanisms of action obviously if you have hypertension you want to be careful with salt but you actually don't want to assume that salt is going to be bad for it i've seen studies where people with hypertension increase their salt and the hypertension actually goes down now that's not always if a person is deficient in potassium, then salt can make it worse. But salt is actually very good at reducing stress. And so I think by that mechanism is why it can sometimes actually make a person's blood sugar balanced and make a person feel better. So that does depend. If you're depe depleting in potassium, salt can make you worse though. So take that on a case-by-case -case basis. You can get yourself a blood sugar cuff, have a high salt meal, and then see what it does. If it raises it even more, don't do that but you might actually find that it lowers it as a lot of people do. Um, pregnenolone and progesterone. So pregnenolone is the master hormone. Um, it's the hormone that all other steroid hormones are made out of. So you have cholesterol that your body turns into pregnenolone and from there it turns it into all the other ones. DHEA, progesterone, testosterone, estrogen as well and a bunch of the metabolites that are all made from pregnenolone. Pregnenolone is potentially at least fantastic for reducing stress um, and increasing the resilience of uh, the person. But my understanding is the reason why it's so beneficial is because your body will tend to make progesterone out of pregnenolone and progesterone is really powerful and effective at reducing cortisol and stress. Dr. Uh, Platt, who we had on recently, also claims that it lowers um, insulin, so it keeps insulin balanced. He doesn't know the mechanism for it, though, so he may be right. I haven't seen any proof that it directly lowers insulin, but what I have seen an abundance of proof for is it's the number one naturally produced in the body hormone that reduces stress. And as we've talked about, stress is one of the root causes. It's also one of the main hormones in the body that reduces inflammation. And as we talked about, inflammation is one of the other root causes. So it also improves thyroid function. It, uh, progesterone is a bit of a miracle hormone that helps with everything. So if you're open to taking progesterone supplementation, then like Dr. Platt talks about transdermally, then that's something that you can do. It's available just over the counter in many countries, not in mine, but like in the US, for instance. If you're wary of that, then preg you can take pregnant alone, which is for sale as a 
you know, supplement, just a capsule you can take from a lot of places. Um, Dr. Pete's preference was to use pregnenolone for this particular purpose, for insulin resistance, for reducing stress. Dr. Platt's is to use progesterone. So I'll leave it up to you. Um, and then thyroid, we've talked about before, optimizing thyroid. Um, I think I said at the beginning, so I'll just say it again at the end, because thyroid is the master regulator of energy production. If your thyroid is low, your stress chemicals will be high. There is no other choice. If your metabolism is not fast enough to produce the energy that you need, you will have to go to your backup metabolism stimulator, and that is stress, uh, stress chemicals, stress hormones. So it could absolutely be a root cause issue. If you have hypothyroidism, even if it's not clinical, but if it's suboptimal levels of thyroid hormone, that can mean your stress is too high and all the stuff we just talked about can happen. Really, really, really full of so much valuable information. So, you know, the other thing is what I've really heard today as well is making sure that your hormones are where they're supposed to be because if that's out of whack, then whatever you're doing for insulin resistance, it's either not going to work or it's going to be very hard to get on track with that. And then also yes. too within all of this, then once you maybe you know you've looked at that then it's picking your strategy like you said and those no-brainers ellen that's a great great list i was going to ask before we close here do you have any other final thoughts for somebody that is you know looking at all of this they've listened to this and like oh my goodness this is me you know is there anything else that you would say or suggest to them so yeah i would say what i want to reiterate what you said which is look at those root issues the hormones the vitamins and stuff like that the minerals before you try changing how you eat Whatever's working for you now, stick with that. Then the next thing I change is not what you eat, but when you eat, based on what we talked about. So start eating within an hour of getting up. Start eating regularly, right? Every even if it's every eight hours, if you prefer that. If it's every four hours, if you prefer that. But something like that. Start eating regularly, um, and then when you feel a lot better, and if you do everything I just said, you probably will feel a lot better pretty quickly. Then you can consider. If you want to change the diet, if you want to, maybe you'll probably do better being keto. If that's your ultimate goal, you'll be, you'll do better being high carb. You'll do better doing whatever you want to do when you have that metabolic strength back by following that advice about the hormones and about the vitamins and about the minerals. If that sounds self-serving, like, oh, well, and you're just trying to sell me something I could, I want to just fix it with diet. Then everything I just listed, I think the only thing we sell is vitamin D and K2 and magnesium. So two products, everything else I've said, and they're not the main things I'm recommending. So everything else I said is stuff that we don't sell. So I'm not recommending it because we sell it. I'm recommending it because it works because I've seen so many people who try and put it all on diet. They keep yo-yoing between different diets and never get better. So that's what I, you know, this episode is dedicated to really helping people who are in that position who are sick of trying different diets and not getting better and they want to resolve the root issue. You also sell berberine, correct? Oh, you're right. It wasn't my last list, but yeah. We don't <laughs> sell inositol, but we do sell berberine. Okay, so there's three things on my list of 20-ish things, uh, 15 things, whatever it was. So it's up to you. But yeah, that's not why I'm recommending it. Uh, I'm recommending it because it works. I wish we sold more of those things. Maybe, you know, if you're watching this years later, we'll sell more of them. But for now, and some of them will never sell, like hormones, which are probably the things that will make the most difference anyway. So... Uh, yeah, it's up to you if you want to, you know, believe me or, or be cynical about it, which I do understand skeptical about it in this day and age, but resolving the hormones, resolving the stress chemicals, 
resolving any underlying deficiencies that's where I would start not diet absolutely fantastic Owen thank you this is as I said just a minute ago this has been very very informative and very very helpful I know for myself and also I'm certain for our listeners that have joined us today and for those of you that have thank you so much for your time and please remember to leave your comments below ask us some questions you know if you've got something that we haven't answered please do let us know and we'll get back to you and also please hit the like and subscribe button so you don't miss an episode and we will We'll see you next time.